Song number 31 has been asked that we mark that and use that at the proper time a bit later in the time of our service this morning. As was already mentioned, we each can be so thankful, appreciative of the blessing that we've been given to be able to assemble this morning, this third Sunday in the month of November. Certainly outside, though things may look dreary, how bright it can be in light of the Word of God. For thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The brightness and the light exhibited to us in Psalm 119, verse 105. It is the case, as we gather together this morning, that you may have noted in the bulletin that the title of the lesson is The Wrong Personal Approach to Sin. And in fact, this will be the first of a two-part series of lessons. We will conclude it next Lord's Day morning, so I would hope that if you take notes, or if you in fact have a consideration in regard to matters you're copying down, we in fact will complete it next Lord's Day morning. By way of introduction to the lesson this morning, as we think about the character of sin and the possibility of responses to it, isn't it an amazing thing to keep these initial concepts in mind? Sin is, in fact, a very, very real thing. It is so common, and it is not just in our modern age, but in fact, perhaps it has ever been so, that there is a tendency for the human family to fail to appreciate the, enorm the enormity of sin. We whitewash it, cover over it. We call it by various and sundry names, the attempt of which is to reduce the force, the pressure, and the power of it. Rather than call things fornication, he's having an affair. Makes it sound a lot better, but doesn't change the nature of it. We're able to describe things in a way that seems to remove a bit of the intensity Sin is real. We may not use the word much. Society may not talk about it a lot, but it doesn't change the fact that sin is something that does exist. And what's more, all of us are guilty of it. It's not that we can lay the blame at the foot of someone else. All of us have to face the reality of passages like these. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Thirteen verses later, in verse 23 of that chapter, "...for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God." In 1 John 1 verse 8, "...he that saith that he hath no sin is a liar, and the truth is not in him." If I were thus to make the bold and aggressive statement that I haven't sinned, and I won't sin, John very pointedly states, "...you, my friend, are a liar." May we never forget then the fact that just as surely as sin is a real matter, it's not just that it's something everyone else has to face. I have to deal with it. You must deal with it. We all must face the reality of sin in our life. One of the matters then that comes before us this morning is this one. Given that sin is a reality, what then is my reaction to it? How should I react to that sin once I become aware of the fact that I'm guilty of it? There are many things that might be suggested as potential responses to that. And as I mentioned, we will discuss some of them next Sunday. But for today, let's look at three. Three of them that in fact are the improper, incorrect, inappropriate responses to personal sin. In fact, the question at the bottom... What is the proper response? Well, today we're going to look at what some wrong responses are. As we do that, let's begin this lesson in the following way. First of all, looking at some notes 
about that theme we first of all described as sin. Although it might well be true that given your knowledge of the Scriptures and mine, some of these thoughts might already be obvious. But we do live in a world where so many do not understand even the most basic understandings about sin. These are things then that we each need to not only understand ourselves, but to also help others to understand at the proper time as well. If someone asks, well, what is sin? We stated we live in a, in a society where many do not really understand even what sin is. Some are under the impression that sin is just the overactive imagination and conscience of a person who hadn't been taught any better. You can do what you want, they think. You can speak and live the way you want. It's only if you allow your fundamentalist trained conscience to be bothered that it'll bother you. They are the ones that need some training. Sin is real. It's a violation and a transgression of God's law. Sin is the transgression of God's law. 1 John 3 verse 4. And thus any law of God that is enforced today, if it is broken or violated in any way, be it intentionally or unintentionally, that constitutes sin. Some of these words are meant to help us more clearly understand that point. The law of God. There is a law enforced this very day. I'm not talking about merely the law from Washington, D.C. or from Nashville, Tennessee or from Putnam County's courthouse in Cookville. This is the law of God etched in the very hallmark of the grandeur of heaven. In Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1, was it not true that God on that occasion said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. There is something to be heard. Isn't it amazing that God didn't just say, This is my beloved Son. He said, Listen to Him. Hear Him. What He says is the law of heaven. It is the law of God. And those who ignore it, or those who in fact fail to appreciate it, do so to their own eternal doom. Hear Him. In Romans 8, beginning in verse number 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who in Christ Jesus, to those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Paul thus said, there's a law of sin and death, but there's a law of Christ that's able to make one free from that. There is a law today. Didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 9.21, that he was a servant to the law of Christ. Today, it's the law of Christ then that's in force. It's the law of Christ that is to be answered to by you and me. It is for those reasons that we might thus notice that any unrighteousness, that is to say, any transgression of his law constitutes sin. In 1 John 5 verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin. That means it's not just things like murder and things like kidnapping. It's things like lying and things like untrustworthiness and things like speaking things we ought not speak. All of that's unrighteousness because all of it is waged against the right living as God has defined it. It is in light of that that you can notice even when we fail to do what's good, even when we fail to do what He's told us to do, that too is sin. 
For to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, James 4.17. Perhaps you and I quite often fall beneath the load of that realization. A set of good things I'm supposed to do and yet my failure to do them. When I overlook them, that too on my account is sin. All of these things you see bring us face to face with the fact that we're guilty of sin. You and I are sinners. No wonder then the pertinent question is to notice that that sin has such great consequences. When you ask, well, what does sin do? What does it mean to be guilty of it? Perhaps that list needs to begin right here. It defiles me. When I am guilty of sin, it defiles me. That word defile means to contaminate. It means to pollute. It means to mar, to tarnish. It means to remove from the grandeur and the kind of character it was supposed to have had. Sin does that to me. And sin does that to you. No wonder God to ancient Israel said in Isaiah 1 beginning in verse 16, Wash you, make you clean. Now you'll notice, He wasn't talking about take a bath. He wasn't talking about telling them to take a shower. Wash you, make you clean, He told them. Why? Two verses later. Come now and let us reason together for your iniquities, for your sins. Though they be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. You see, they were guilty of sin. They were guilty of iniquity. And it made them washed over and blackened just like they needed to be spiritually cleansed. Is it not thus the case? All of us find ourselves in that predicament because we've all been guilty of sin. I need to be spiritually cleansed. And so too do you. However, in light of all that, it does challenge us. What then should be the personal response to sin? If it defiles me, if it, if it separates me from God, and that it does. Didn't God through Isaiah tell the ancient people of Israel, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Didn't Ezekiel say something similar in Ezekiel 23, 18? Again, reminding him, your sins have driven you away from God. It does the same thing today. The nature of sin, you see, hasn't changed in that regard. Perhaps the enormity, the magnitude of sin is most clearly seen when we see what happened because of it. God sent His Son, and His Son lived the life that He did, and He died the death that He did, all because of sin. If ever a picture could be painted that should help hopefully indelibly print in our mind just how great sin is, ought not that be it? Imagine the scourging that Jesus took, lash after lash from those brutal Roman soldiers. The blood that raced down from His brow as well as His back and His front. The nails driven into His side, into His hands and feet. All of that was because of sin. I would suggest to each of us then that specific sin sometimes to us may not seem that bad. But that's just because we don't understand sin. Some people think a little lie doesn't, never hurt anybody. Some people might think a little dishonesty never hurt anything. 
Some people may think that a little bit of deception surely isn't wrong. But I'd submit, what does this book say? It says in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 5 through 7 that a little deception is wrong. And it says a little lying is wrong, Ephesians 4.25. And it says a little dishonesty is wrong, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. All the while, doesn't it point us, then we could list many things about sin. But in 1 John 3 verse 8 it says, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this cause the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. He that is of sin, or he that committeth sin is of the devil. Guess what? If you and I commit sin and fail to take the proper action in it, we are the kinfolk of the devil. Call us his brother if you like. Call me his cousin if you like. Be that as it may, if I come face to face with sin and do nothing about it, if I'm happy to live in it, I am of the devil. The Bible says so. But thankfully the Son of God came. For this cause the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to crush the power of the devil, destroy the works of the devil, remove the influence of the devil eternally in your life and mine. No wonder then we're now prepared, I hope, to look into some wrong personal responses to sin. Given its gravity, given its moment, given its greatness, our responses ought not be like this. But nonetheless, sometimes we're tempted to perhaps respond in ways like these. First of all, one of the things that's such a common response is in fact to just ignore it. That is to say, despite the fact that one becomes aware of sin in his or her life, becomes aware of its existence, becomes aware of the reality of its presence, nonetheless the person chooses to ignore it, to pretend that it's not there. Consider with me these thoughts. In light of what we've just stated earlier about what sin does, namely it defiles, it pollutes, it contaminates, it separates from God, it would be entirely fair to say that a person then who chooses to ignore sin doesn't realize its seriousness, doesn't realize its urgency, doesn't realize its eternal consequences. But even beyond that, we would quickly say, just perhaps to draw a comparison to help us understand it more thoroughly. Let's just suppose that an individual came to be aware of the fact that he or she had melanoma, skin cancer. In fact, not just a skin cancer, but the worst kind of skin cancer. Melanoma can ultimately lead to such disastrous consequences like death. And it can race to that end so quickly. Question... If a person found out that he or she had melanoma, would the wise thing to do be to ignore it? To pretend that it's not there? To pretend that it's something else? To hope it'll go away? Wouldn't that be the height of folly? Wouldn't that be the height of foolishness just to ignore it? Especially given the fact that when melanoma is treated early enough, there's almost a 100% chance that it can be cleared up. I think we'd all agree, and common sense would tell us, if you ignore the melanoma, you'll likely die in a short period of time when it was unnecessary. 
well, what about the same matter in sin? Do you suppose it's wise? Do you suppose it's the best thing to do to just ignore it? To pretend that it's not there? Look at some of these continuing thoughts. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 14.9 that fools make a mock at sin. That's the closest the Bible comes to say you're a fool if you ignore sin. If you find sin in your life, if you come to be aware of its existence and you ignore it, the Bible says fools make a mock at sin. It is not the wisest thing to do, is it, to ignore it? It's not wise to simply overlook it, to pretend that it isn't there. You'll notice a number of examples that in addition point out to us just how foolish it can be to ignore it. We remember that God had said to the children of Israel, in the fourth of the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And in that day, they were to appreciate not to do any work. Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord. Thou shalt do no work. It is a day of consecration to the Lord. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. With regard to that, though, we encounter in Numbers chapter 15 a man who was gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And the children of Israel discovered him doing this. They arrested him, put him up in ward, still interested to know what would be the decree of heaven with regard to his disposition. What should we do with this man? After all, is it really that large an infraction to gather sticks on the Sabbath? Is it really that serious a matter? Moses and the children of Israel were in a bit of perplexity. They, they petitioned to God, What are we to do with this man who is gathering sticks on the Sabbath? The man was sinning, but it seems he chose to ignore the fourth of the Ten Commandments. God had said, Do not gather or do not work on the Sabbath. He did it anyway. He chose to ignore sin. Did it matter? Did he find himself in just as good a position afterward as before? When the children of Israel threw Moses' petition to God, God said, put that man to death. He sinned. He violated my commandment. And the commandment was, any who would in fact work or do despite to that fourth of the Ten Commandments, he should be separated from his people. He should be put to death. That was the judgment and decree of God. They took that man out of the camp, picked up rocks and stoned him to death. Question. Was it the best course of action to ignore sin? Was it the best course of action to pretend it didn't exist? Well, the answer is clearly no, isn't it? We might mention in addition that scene in Joshua chapter 9. On that occasion, the Gibeonites, they purposefully and deliberately misled Joshua and the children of Israel. They, in fact, did the very thing described in the passages there before us. The children of Israel fell for the delusion. They fell for the dishonesty. God was not pleased. One more time we notice, even though they did it in ignorance, was it a matter that was worthy of being overlooked? Fools make a mock at sin. We might well mention perhaps another example from Jeremiah 26 verse 2. On that occasion, as God commissioned Jeremiah to stand in the court of the temple and preach to this people that they were guilty of sin, but they thought it was a light thing. They literally thought it was light, L-I-G-H-T. It isn't serious, they said. 
darkness. Oh, they went about their way ignoring it. God wanted them to know it is not a light matter. This is what has caused you to be separated from me and it's what's leading you into captivity in Babylon and there's where you're headed because of your sin. Wake up, people, God told them through Jeremiah. It is not a light thing. Perhaps in light of those matters, how tragic it is, both in that day and in ours, when we choose to ignore sin. We try to whitewash it. And when we do that, we come to the realization of just how pathetic that response is. I would ask you to notice, Jesus did not die on the cross for you and me to ignore our sin. If it was possible for us to ignore it and it be all right, why did He ever come? Why did He ever leave the greatness of heaven and die the death He did at Calvary if we could ignore it and be okay? Jesus came that we might deal with it and that we might deal with it far better than ignoring it. If you and I recognize there's sin in our life, we'd make a grave mistake to ignore it. What about another response that is no better? Just as surely as we may choose to ignore it, another thing we could do is to realize it but try to hide it. Now, one of the things to note almost immediately is this. If we become aware of sin, but we try to hide it, that directly means that we're ashamed of it. That directly means in our attempt to conceal it that we understand that it is not proper. But yet, in our matter of dealing with it, we choose to hide it. We choose to conceal it. We choose to cover it up. Is that the best course of action? We learned earlier that to ignore it was not good. Is it any better if we try to hide it? You'll notice that these thoughts perhaps take us to this point. Let's use our melanoma example again. Suppose a person again comes to be aware that he or she has melanoma, very terrible skin cancer. But suppose this person wants to do something about it but chooses, I'll just wear clothing to cover it up. Or if it's on my face, I'll use makeup. I'll just hide it. I'll cover it up. Will that not suffice? Will that not help? I think we all, almost with a chuckle, say, well, clearly that won't help to cure the melanoma. That won't help to in any way remove it. It covers it up, but it doesn't remove its effects. It doesn't remove its consequences. It doesn't remove the death that's coming my way. Is it not true that the same is true of sin? Covering it up doesn't in any way remove it by way of forgiveness. It doesn't in any way remit it by virtue of its consequences. Let's study that a bit more thoroughly. As we give thought to hiding it, the Bible also tells us just as surely as ignoring it was wrong, again, fools make a mock at sin, Proverbs 14, 9. The text that Adam read for us earlier from Numbers 32, 23 says it this way, Be sure your sin will find you out. You can't conceal it. You and I can't hide it. We may think we can. And we may, in fact, go to great length to try. But in the final analysis, we will be unsuccessful. Consider with me these verses and these examples. In Joshua, the sixth and seventh chapters, we encounter this rather compelling scene. The children of Israel had left Egypt. They had wandered through the wilderness for quite some period of time. 
They had crossed the Jordan River and entered into the land of Canaan. But now the task that was theirs was to overwhelm and conquer the peoples who were living there. The first city up for conquer was Jericho. The children of Israel espied the city, marched around it, did what God said, with one exception. God had very clearly said to them, you march around the city once a day for six days, and on the seventh day you march around it seven times, and then you shout. The walls of the city will crumble. You advance at once and take the city. They did that. But one other instruction that God had given them, the spoils of the city are mine. You put the spoils into the treasury, things like silver, gold, garments, it all belongs to me. One member of the children of Israel did not do what God said. One member of the children of Israel took a Babylonian garment, a wedge of silver, and some gold, hid it under his tent. He thought that all was well. His mind was Achan. Achan, you see, took some things because he wanted them. Now might we ask, out of the 603,550 that long before had left Egypt, and of that number only two had entered Canaan, of the present number of fighting individuals, only one, it seems, had been guilty of sin. Only one, Achan. Was it good for him to hide his sin? Was that the best thing to do? It is a compelling thing, isn't it? We all remember what happened. God told Joshua, there is sin in the camp. And with that sin in the camp, we remember God said, You bring the children of Israel one by one, family before me. As they passed by, God said, It's not him. It's not him. It's not him. But when Achan was there, God said, There's the man. There's the man. The children of Israel took that man out in the valley of Acre and stoned him to death. Not only he, but his whole family. Was it wise to try to cover up the sin? Wouldn't it have been far better to openly come out and say, God, I'm guilty. I confess it. Here it is. I plead your forgiveness. The man tried to hide it. You see, trying to hide sin is no good. That doesn't accomplish anything. It's like trying to cover up the melanoma. It doesn't cure it one bit. Not only Achan, we might well remember the example of David. In 2 Samuel 11, we find a man at the height of his empire. Strong, powerful, mighty, respected, but yet he spied a woman from a distance. Her name was Bathsheba. He had her brought to him and committed adultery with her. And as if that wasn't enough, he tried first to cover the sin up by bringing her husband home from warfare and hoping he'd lay with her so that the child that she was bearing that was really his, that everybody would think it was, they would think it was Uriah's. He wanted to cover up the sin. Guess what? It didn't work. Uriah was too noble a man to go into his wife. When all the other soldiers were out fighting, he wouldn't go in, and David was beside himself, what do I do? So he had Uriah killed. And then he quickly married her so that the child that really was his could now be seen as legitimate. David tried to cover up his sin. And in the process of that, he had a man killed. Isn't that tragic? Was it wise? Was it the best thing to do to try to cover up the sin? 
we all remember how that story ended. God had Nathan come to David and said, David, you are the man. I know all about what you've done. I know everything you did, every thought you had. I know all of it, David, and you're the man. And I got a little bit of news for you, David. The sword will never depart from your house. Never. Never, ever will it depart from your house. And David came to rue the day he ever had such a pathetic response to sin as that. We, we, we well remember his children rebelled against him. One of his sons, in fact, took the life of another one of them when Absalom killed Amnon. We remember Amnon raped his half-sister. David, the sword will never, ever depart from your house. Ignoring sin, you see, doesn't do anybody any good. And yet we live in a world when perhaps it's the thing Satan tempts us to do, to either ignore it or to hide it. The Bible sets before us the words that we make a grave mistake when we try to hide it. In fact, isn't it true in light of that, most of the time the sin becomes known anyway. David tried to hide it, but he didn't succeed. Achan tried to hide it, but he didn't succeed either. And today, more often than not, a person who tries to hide something, others find it out anyway. It eventually becomes known. Haven't we seen the scandals that have rocked Penn State University lately? No doubt that man, he was successful maybe at hiding it for virtually the better part of a decade, but now the whole world knows it. And what's more, look at the way in which that university has been crushed. You see, sin is going to crush you and me too, and hiding it does no good at all. You could perhaps see near the bottom of that, God knows it anyway. Didn't Hagar cry in the days of the long ago in Genesis 16:13, Thou, O God, seest me. Here she was on the outskirts of the desert, and she still understood the fact that God knew everything about her, what she had done, and where she was going. We notice in Proverbs 15:3 that says, For the eyes of the Lord are, are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do, reads Hebrews 4.13. Because of all of that, we surely can conclude it's a tragic mistake to try to hide our sin. That does no good either. To ignore it or to hide it either way overlooks the things that God would wish us to do. In the final analysis today, one more wrong approach to sin. And then the lesson today will have drawn to its conclusion. In addition to ignoring it, in addition to hiding it, another thing we can do is deal with it unscripturally. This too is a strong temptation on the part of Satan, isn't it? So many try to excuse their sin, but I had reason. Or they try to blame somebody else. I only did that because of him or because of her. Aren't we awfully good sometimes at blaming somebody else? When in reality, my sin is my fault, period. No one made me do it. No one, in fact, forced me. No one urged me in such a way that I had to comply. My sin is my fault. But yet the human family is so good at blaming everybody else. Look at some of these examples. You'll notice how foolish this can be just as surely as it was in the case of the melanoma earlier. 
question. If I understand that I have melanoma, maybe I understand it's not good to ignore it, and maybe I understand it's not good to try to cover it up. What if I rub Vaseline on it twice a day every day? Will that assist it? Will that cure it? Will that remove it? I think we all know that answer. It's not going to remove the melanoma. You see, it's possible to take some action, but maybe it's the wrong action. Maybe it's the action that in fact does not accomplish anything fruitful. The Bible reminds us in, in Hosea 14.9 that it too is foolish to deal with a matter in a way other than what God has said. He said, Who is wise and he shall understand these things? Prudent and he shall know them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk therein, but the transgressor shall fall therein. It is to be noted then, the transgressor is the one that will overlook the right way. It's the just that will understand what God wants us to know. Some examples from the Bible that point us to the folly of dealing with it unscripturally may take us to Acts, the fifth chapter. We will remember that there was a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. It was these who in fact had been blessed. And they sold a parcel of land and gave part of the money to the apostles to use for works of benevolence or otherwise. But yet they made the claim that they gave all of it. Even when Peter asked Ananias about it, he told part of the truth, but not all of it. He dealt with it unscripturally, and that man died right there in front of Peter. Three hours later, his wife came in. Peter questioned her about it, and she dutifully, like a wife perhaps might think of doing, she told the story Ananias had told her to tell. She died at Peter's feet the same day. The same men that buried her husband buried her too. Was it wise then to treat sin unscripturally? Why couldn't Peter have just said... Or why couldn't Ananias have just said, we only gave part of it? It was their money. They didn't have to give all of it anyway. Why not just confess, admit what they had done, and face the reality of the punishment, whatever it would, would have been? We might notice that they chose the route of dealing with it unscripturally to maintain the lie. Might we notice that there's so many opportunities in the Scriptures Adam and Eve, when they were convicted of sin, they tried to blame somebody else. God first addressed Adam, and He said, The woman that you gave me, she gave me, and I took of it. Adam tried his best to cast at least part of the blame onto Eve. God turned His attention to Eve, and she said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. She tried to cast the blame on that snake, on that serpent. God didn't accept either one of their opportunities to cast the blame. He turned around and laid punishment on Adam, on Eve, and on the serpent. They weren't able to cast the blame, were they? And today, you and I are not able to do that successfully either. If I'm guilty of sin, I can't say you made me do it. I can't say you caused me to be that way. I'm guilty of sin because I made a choice to violate God's will and for that, I need to face the reality of that position, what it has brought upon me. Is it not fair to say in light of that that God's Word has in it what does allow us to be cleansed from sin? 
although we will look at that far more thoroughly next Lord's Day morning, it is fair to close the lesson today by saying, Jesus did say in John 15, 3, the words that I say unto you are that which can cleanse you. You're clean through the words which I have spoken. If we want to deal with sin in a way that's right, we mustn't hide it. We mustn't ignore it. And we mustn't deal with it unscripturally. We must deal with it scripturally. That means to do what the Word tells us to do, for it to be forgiven, for it to be remitted, for it to be taken care of. Thankfully, the Bible gives us so much information about that, and we shall look at it in detail next Lord's Day morning. But for now, can we not conclude this lesson by saying in 1 Peter 1 verse 22, Purifying your souls through obedience to the truth. That's how we purify. We obey this truth. In Romans 6 verse 17, Thanks be unto God because of the victory that's ours. Ye were the servants of sin, Paul wrote, but now ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. If we want to be made free from sin... We can't ignore it, can't hide it, can't deal with it unscripturally. We must obey that doctrine that God has sent. That is what will remove it. Today, if you need to respond to the gospel call of invitation, because you realize there's sin in your life, don't ignore it. Don't try to hide it. And don't try to deal with it in an improper way. But rather, come to the Word and let that Word of Christ dwell in you. And as you do that, it will cleanse and purify you, 1 Peter 1.22. If today you're an alien sinner, one who at this point is still in sin because you've never come to Christ initially, you need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Acts 8, 37. You need to repent of the sins in your life, Luke 13, 5. You need to confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God in those words of 1 John 4, 15. And you need to then be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. If you have begun that way of life but have not been faithful, come back to your loving Savior at once. Don't remain in sin. If you have left His side of faithfulness, again, you still are left with this decision. Do I ignore sin? Do I hide sin? Do I deal with it unscripturally? The answer is no. Come back to Christ. Confess those sins to Him. He'll forgive. If those sins are of a public character, we would urge you to make it known so that we too can pray with you and for you. If any of these things would be the need of your life today, why not come at once while together we stand and while we sing?